Ready? Go. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hang on! It's off the charts spectacular. Go, go, go! Tom Cruise has outdone himself. The world's coming after you. Stay out of my way. Prepare for one of the best action movies ever made. This is getting exciting. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome into the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Perry. Merrick Scopel is with me as always. And today's show is your best questions with our answers coming up next. If you're new to DuckTerritory.com, you can subscribe today for as low as $1.995 thereafter each month. Uh, you could also sign up and save some significant coin by doing the annual membership. Uh, it's about $75 for an annual membership. Saves you over $3.00. Compare, per month compared to the month to month price. So inside scoop, inside access to insiders like Kevin Wade, Eric Scopel, myself, Brandon Huffman, Greg Biggins, Blair and Guillo, Steve Wiltfong, the entire national crew. Uh, you get to read not just us at duckterritory.com, but you get to read every piece of content. That's a VIP content piece across the 24 seven sports network. So Oregon's recruiting a USC target as well. You can go check out what the USC site is reporting on that player. Uh, and then you can go see what Ohio State is reporting on that player as well. So get the full scoop, get the full story by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com. All right. Um, mailbag time. We've got six good questions, one of which, Eric, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're starting here, but it's one that you spent hours, you said, preparing <laughs> for. We're going to leave that to the end of the show. Hours might be an exaggeration, but it was way too much time looking through things. So um, thank you to SegaDuck75. Your question will be the – We'll wrap the show up with that question, and uh, that'll, that'll get, that way you're not. I guess that'll allow folks to they can enjoy the rest of the show, and then if I ramble too too long at the end, you can you can turn it off, I guess, if you want. But um, I did do quite a bit of research on that. We'll finish up there, but we'll start from a question uh, from at Duckboy33. When do you think we will know about the 2020 season? Is it possible for the Pac-12 to play without all of their members participating? Um, we should say that we don't know exactly when we're going to know about the 2020 season, but I think we got some clarity in terms of they're going to need about six weeks of time to prepare for a season. And so if we get to the middle of July, that's about six weeks from a September start, that would be a pretty clear indication. If they can't start then, you know, if they can't start practicing then, that would mean that that six-week mark might get pushed back or they're going to have to make some alterations. So mid-July at the latest, I think obviously you'd like to have more clarity as time goes on. I think we're going to continue, as we've seen even over the course of the last couple of weeks, to gain more clarity, more idea of what's going to happen. But I don't think this is something that we're going to have an idea of maybe by the end of you know May, maybe even by the end of June. It's possible this is something that carries into July. Matt, do you agree with that, or do you have a more specific uh, timeline for when you expect we'll know? And then uh, we can talk about the second part of the question after. Um, I, I go back to Mullins, Oregon's athletic director, Rob Mullins, answering a question that I asked him of, you know, how much time does football need to prepare to play games in a healthy manner? You know, so athletes don't just, you know, two weeks before season starts, start playing and, you know, practicing and then guys get hurt. He said six weeks, like you said. So I, I think if, if it's going to start on time, Meaning September 5th, we'll know probably early July, mid July at the very latest that football will be starting because players will be arriving soon. I would imagine 
if we're expecting an on-time start time of early September, that first week in September, we'll know probably here in, in the next six weeks. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then the second part of the question is an interesting one that we also don't have, like, total clarity on because there is so much that's up in the air. But is it possible the Pac-12 to play without all the member schools participating? I guess it is, in theory, possible, but that would really mess up a lot of stuff if you think about the scheduling and how do they handle that. What does that do in terms of postseason play? Um, if, 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 and it's not an, an impossibility. I mean, we, we, there's already clearly differences of opinion um, from a state level about when they're comfortable reopening. I mean, I think Arizona is basically fully reopened right now. Other parts are slowly starting to reopen. Um, it could be a thing where by the time the season starts, maybe there's a, a wide variety of opinions and maybe some schools aren't able to start at the same time. I don't know. I think it's going to be a crazy thing. Um, at the same time, I don't know if the conference is going to want to proceed without some of its member schools available. Like, like let's say, for example, maybe it's you know, Northern California schools, Cal and Stanford, aren't available to play. Is the conference want to play with 10 teams? Is that something that they really want to do? And how does that impact everything else? I mean, I think these are, there are huge questions. And, I'm, again, they've talked about all these models they've set up. So, obviously, they probably have had discussions or considerations about that sort of thing. But um, I, I don't have a clear answer on this. And no one has said this on the record. But my feeling is it would be hard to start a season without all 12 because that would have huge implications to a lot of different things and certainly would make it a much different season than a traditional season for the Pac-12. I go back to what I think it was Justin Wilcox said during the Pac-12 webinar of the conference doesn't want to get left behind with their peers mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the conference would play in like January instead of normal September through November. Yeah. And I just so – the conference as a whole doesn't want to get left behind. I have a hard time imagining that they would leave some of their own brethren within their own conference <laughs> behind yeah. uh, to do that. So I, I don't see a scenario in which the whole conference doesn't play at the same time. Yeah, and, and I think we're on the same page there. I mean, there's, there's going to be absolutely some, some bizarre nature of how this all comes together, but I think it would be very unlikely that you see the Pac-12 proceed with the season with, like, only eight or nine or ten of their schools participating. That seems a little far-fetched. Um, but something that we'll certainly keep an eye out for, and, and I think we'll have more clarity on some of these possible scenarios over the course of the next six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, as, as things become more um, readily available. Second question from at Altman Fever. Sewell and Holland feel like locks for the first round in 2021. What player has the best chance at being number three in 2021? I don't think he's saying a third first-round pick because, from my perspective at least, I don't see one on the roster. But the third player off the board in 2021 is how I'm um, interpreting that question. There's a couple. There's a, there's a couple of good choices, but I landed on Diomedy Lenore in terms of he's a physical bump and run coverage corner. That is a very popular type of style, especially at the NFL level where you have these big, strong receivers. I think the way he plays would fit well on an NFL roster. I don't think he's a first-round pick. I don't know if he's even a day-two pick. Maybe he's a third-round guy. But um, I would think he would be the next most attractive player on the roster from an NFL perspective. The exciting part, of course, is that there's a full season to be had, and some other players that were not even that you know that aren't even fully on my radar might really improve their st- you know their draft status. Who knows if uh, somehow like a Brady Breeze or Nick Pickett really blow up as a senior? I'm not saying that those guys are, are likely, but those are kind of two guys that you feel like are unlikely to that maybe become that next player. But 
I think Deion Lee Nord to me right now feels like the safest bet. Matt, do you have a choice? Um, I think Diomede Lenore could maybe sneak into that late first round. Maybe. I, I think if football is played and he has an all-American type season, I could see him maybe jumping into that first round, very late first round. He has a really good combine and yeah. maybe there's a run up of, of cornerbacks picked earlier in the draft and maybe his value goes up a little bit because of that. I can see that, but I, I'm with you. I, I would probably say, if you had to tell me bet on three or bet on two, I would not bet on three. I would def- definitively say that there'll only be two, but who could be that first guy off the board after Panay Sewell and Javon Holland? I would probably go with, uh, Yamle Lenore as well. Talented player, has the NFL body. Thomas Graham, maybe, would be the other one that I would probably lean towards, but I, I think Lenore has the better from what I'm reading, the better NFL long-term projection than Graham does. And that's the weird part is I think if – and maybe you I think disagree. Graham's been the better cornerback in I, college. I was just going to say – I was going to say maybe you disagree, but clearly you don't. Um, I think Thomas Graham has been the better contributor for Oregon over the course of his career. Obviously, he started another – he started one more full year. He started as a true freshman. I think he's been a really, really capable player, especially in coverage. Um, and I think he's improving as a tackler as well. Um, but yeah, I think Lenore based upon the size and sort of his playing style fits more what the NFL likes to do. But who's to say that that's not the opposite of what takes place. And maybe it's Graham who really elevates his game. We know he's that sort of, that sort of person in terms of really driven, very competitive. Um, you know, he, you know, said when he came back in January, made the decision that he was coming back with the intention of really improving and he wanted his teammates to hold him accountable. So that's the kind of guy that you can see make big strides. But uh, I still think I'd go with Lenore. But I think those two are going to be kind of fun to follow in terms of their NFL draft stock because they came to Oregon at the same time. They've been a part of that starting secondary. Now this will be their third season doing that. Um, I think those two guys are going to be kind of fun to track, and I agree. I think those are probably the top two candidates after Sewell and Holland to come off the draft board in 2021. Third question from at Crystal Orndorf. When slash if the Pac-12 folds, which conference do you think Oregon would go to? It's kind of a, a doomsday perspective question. Um, at the same time, like, yeah, the Pac-12's not – I don't want to say it's not doing great, but there's certainly, like, some chinks in the armor right now. There's certainly some reason for some concern. Um, so, like, I understand that part of the question, but I also don't think this is, like – you say when. I don't think this is, like, happening in the next five years. I don't think this is imminent. Um, maybe I'm naive, but I, I think the conference still has is still healthy enough that they'll be able to at least continue for a handful more years. In terms of what like the most logical choices are for where, which conference they could join, I think the Big 12, from a geographical perspective, I guess would make the most sense. Um, not that I mean if the schools are at least closer than what you get in the ACC and the SEC and the Big 10 for the most part. Um, and there had obviously, I think maybe part of this is that when the Pac-12 was looking to expand, there were talks about adding some of those Texas schools. I know obviously the Longhorns were one of those schools that were mentioned prominently for a while. This has obviously now been six to eight years ago, but, um, that would make the most sense. But I also think you can't, if you're talking about restructuring what conference, I don't think you can eliminate the possibility that they would somehow create a new conference that would be formed or that they would combine parts of the Big 12 and the Pac-12 to make another conference. But um, the Big 12 would make the most sense of the conferences that are currently in place 
I think. Do you agree, Matt? That's what I was going to say is if, if we were going to assume, like, let's just say that there's conference realignment and something was to transpire where Pac-12 was going to be break, broken up. I, I would argue that a new conference would emerge and we, we would see like Washington because that would bring the Seattle market, Oregon because that would bring the Portland market. You would also see UCLA and USC because that would bring uh, the LA market. I, I believe we'd probably see Stanford into it because while they don't have a huge fan base, they do attract uh, some of the best athletes and they do win a ton of, you know, whether it's Olympic or uh, the revenue sports that are pretty successful there. They have, that would tie in the Bay area. And then I would, I would see like, you know, we would probably see Oklahoma. We would probably see Oklahoma state. We would probably see uh, Texas join into the fold. And we could then potentially see something like Arizona, Arizona state, and we could also see Minnesota because of the, the 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 population base up there and the, and the, the markets of Minneapolis up there. And, um, we could also see San Diego State. We could see Boise. Um, mm-hmm. We could see UNLV. Uh, I, I'm with you. I, I I think if the conference were to fold, all of those schools that now become available, the 12 Pac-12 schools, some of them would fit – a Western region conference. Some of them would fit maybe the big 12. And and honestly, like if one of the power five conferences folds, I think that would be a domino effect where we would see just total national realignment of some, some schools from maybe a third conference switch, switch over and they create a new conference with, you know, the the old PAC 12 and some schools from the big 12 or what have you. And when we get more of a, a three or a four conference, you know, power, you know, power group. I've been, and not to go out and make this too long of a tangent, but for a long time, I've thought it makes more sense to split the country into like four geographical regions and have each region have, I don't know, 20 to 25 schools in it. And you have these massive super conferences. You don't play out of conference each, you know, you play, I don't know if you split into divisions or what, but basically you then take the top two, maybe you take the top four from each of those four regions and you play your playoff from that, you know, where you have either eight or 16 teams or whatever it is. And that way you can encompass the power five schools as they are. You can encompass some of the, uh, the, the, the other schools that are, that are major division one football. Uh, you can figure out ways to incorporate the independent schools. That's, I guess, are not that many at this point, but there are a couple. Um, but I always thought that that would be an interesting way to kind of realign college football because I think it would be a little bit different, maybe a little bit more fair almost if you had four regions with 20 or 25 uh, schools in it, and that's the way you broke it out rather than having kind of these five conferences and then another five that are beneath it. So. Um, the group of five, I should say, I forgot that term earlier, but I've always thought that that would be, make a little bit more sense. Of course, you'd have to probably push a couple teams from D1 to make that happen, but, um, you have to, I guess, break a couple eggs to, to scramble them at this point. So, but I, I don't know. That's, that's sort of, a, again, a little bit of a rant there, but I, I've always thought that that would make some sense in terms of moving it from, you currently have like 10 conferences, make it four, make them a little bit bigger, have that, you know, have them play their own kind of sustained seasons and then, in postseason play, bring it all together. I don't know if that'll ever take place, but I've always thought that would make 
some sense in terms of realigning and re kind of creating a new model for everything. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions. If you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Bramer, Scopel is with me. As always, we're answering your best questions that you submit to the mailbag every week. Three in, three more to go. Fourth one from at bbat96. I read that the Ducks are two football scholarships over the limit. What does that mean? And do any players get removed from the team? Um, you're correct on that right now. Uh, Oregon has 87 if we're including George Moore in that. If Moore does not receive an extra senior season, that'll go to 86. Um, there's an 85-player scholarship limit for each season, um, which is what you're looking at there, Why? which is why 87 puts you over two um, by two. And in terms of getting under that, the term removal is, I mean, this isn't like the NFL where you can cut a player. I mean, cut a guy. It, 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 yeah, this is this is a little different. You're talking about scholarships, talking about players that aren't being paid, obviously. So there are ways to accomplish that, but you're not going to have them. Oregon's not going to just come out, and I'm not even going to pick a player because that's mean, but come out and say, this player has been cut from the team. He's no longer with us. Now we're at 85 scholarships. More than likely, the options to do something like that, not in terms of cutting, but to, to make us room for a spot, a player medically retires, a player transfers out, maybe there's some sort of, maybe a player that is not enrolled yet is academically ineligible and can't enroll, and that gets you to 85. But, um, yeah, it's a little different than the NFL or other professional sports where, you know, when it comes to the point where you have to get to a certain number, because there obviously are limits in basketball and the NBA and the NFL, Major League Baseball, you get to that point of that deadline, you have to cut a player. It doesn't happen like that in college sports, but you have to find a way to get to 85 um, or, or you're, you're penalized. So, um, yeah, Oregon's at 87 right now. Could be 86 if George Moore doesn't get it. That means that there are at least going to be one to two players on this roster that won't be part of the team, but it won't be from being released, quote-unquote, like you see in professional sports. Now, how does they how, how does Oregon get below that? I mean, there, there was going to be spring ball where right. some players naturally will look at the depth chart and figure things out. And for the most part, Athletes want to play. They want to play opposed to winning. And maybe I didn't say that right. They want to win, obviously. But they want to be, for the most part, most athletes out there, whether it's collegiately, professionally, amateur, you know, whether it's in high school, guys want to have a, be able to say that they had a say in their team's success. And we see it all the time. A, a talented player, he's 
just for whatever reason behind the depth chart and isn't going to see a significant playing time at Oregon and he'll leave to go play at a lower level. And it's like, well, why would he leave? Oregon's going to win championships or, or, you know, they're, they're going to, they're in the hunt for a college football playoff. They've got the best facilities and they've got all the uniforms and yada, yada, yada that comes with playing at Oregon. Why would he go to an SCS school or why would he go to a group of five school? Because he wants to play. And ultimately that's what matters most for every athlete, whether it's at Oregon, whether it's collegially or professionally. And so spring ball is a good way for players to see where they're at. And that was eliminated. And I would not have been shocked at all if after spring ball had it played out in its entirety, we see two or three or four guys say, you know what? This just isn't working like I thought it was. I, I thought I was going to be further along. I'm not. I want to play. It's not going to be here. It's not that I don't like this place. It's just I want to play. I'm going to move on. That also happens during fall camp. And early on into a football season now that, that athletes have that four game redshirt rule. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if by the time the first season starts, uh, the first game starts of the 2020 football season that we see Oregon kind of just naturally find themselves at that 85 scholarship limit. And good point from Matt there about the spring ball often operating as the way to kind of get that number I don't want to say get that number down. That makes it sound like you go into it with an intentionality to cut players or to, to find players that aren't going to be a part of it. But that typically is a time where where players make those tough decisions and, and things kind of become a little bit more clear. Obviously, we didn't have that in its entirety this year. And I, I think you're right, probably, Matt. There probably would have been at least one to two players, maybe more, that would have kind of seen the writing on the wall, recognized the circumstances, and taken uh, making that choice to, to look elsewhere. We don't have that, so now we're going to have to, I think, wait a little longer to kind of see how that all plays out. Fifth question from at Big Love Kevin: Who out of the 2021 recruiting class right now, and being realistic of what that will look like, where does Oregon fall in terms of class rankings nationally and in the Pac-12? Also, if possible, to answer: Who do you think will make up that class? Um, Matt, I will turn this one over to you. Let's start with where you think Oregon concludes the class nationally and from a Pac-12 level? I think Oregon finishes in the top 10 nationally or maybe like 11th or 12th if they don't crack the top 10. Yeah. I I don't think they're going to finish in the top five, meaning they're not going to sign enough guys to, to get there. But if we looked at simply the recruiting average, Per recruit, Oregon could have a chance to finish in the top five. They're just not going to have the total number of points that's required to get into the top five, I think, because most schools that get there that are in the top five, they usually have 26, 27, 25, 28 players signed in a recruiting class. And Oregon, it's going to be extremely difficult to get to the to 25. And I, I just don't see it happening. So I, I think they've finished somewhere in the top 10 maybe 11 or 12, um, but where they land in the Pac-12, that's going to also decide with how many players does USC sign. How, you know, do, do they go full class? If they go full class, it's going to be difficult for Oregon to surpass them from a total points perspective. But I, I do envision Oregon signing uh, the number one class in the Pac-12 from a per-recruit average ranking score. I think Oregon's will be number one. And Matt, do you want to go ahead and list 13 players who think will also be added to this class for the uh, second part of that question? I'm obviously being suspicious. If you want to run through uh, something more. No, <laughs> I, I, I will not name 13. I think that would be 
awful podcasting audio. Uh, but <laughs> just if, running through if, names. If we want to look at maybe just a couple names that I think will be Oregon Ducks. Yeah. Um, I recently put in a crystal ball for four-star receiver Dante Thornton. I think Oregon will sign him. I think also Oregon will sign Kingsley Salomatia. We, we discussed him in yesterday's podcast about Jonah Miller. He's a four-star offensive tackle from the defensive side of the football. I, I, I think Oregon is probably going to sign another linebacker with the last name of Flo. It's going to be uh, Justin Flo's younger brother, Jonathan, um, a four-star outside linebacker. Justin Flo is an inside linebacker. But I think they'll probably also land Jonathan Flo, who's a four-star player in that class. And uh, if we want to go to the defensive back area, give me uh, Denzel Burke, four-star athlete out of Arizona. Um, I think Oregon's in a good spot there as well. And I think with the other players around him in that area of the state committing to Oregon uh, and the need for, you know, some cornerbacks. I think Oregon will be in a good spot there. So there's there's four out of 13 names. Almost there. A third of the way, Matt. We almost got it. Maybe we'll uh, continue to drop four a week or something like that until this all finds out. Um, all right. Sixth question. Last one from at SegaDuck75. Who is the best player to ever play at Autzen Stadium since the year 2000? I am looking for a non-Oregon player and anyone besides a QB. Hashtag Autzen Audibles. He also says, please consider college and pro careers combined. I will say that I kind of didn't do that last part for my research point portion here. Um, I went through and looked at offensive players that played at Autzen Stadium from other schools that are non-quarterbacks, and I think I've got a pretty complete list of the 10 best performances slash best players wow. to play at Autzen. I did 10 here from 2002, well, at first one 2002 all the way to 2016, Matt, I'm going to run through these, and if you want to say maybe if you if you got uh, maybe at the end, two. Why, well, why don't you start with your two, and then I will uh, run through my ten. Um, I, I think the first name for me that came to mind, the player that I saw at Autzen, um, that's not a quarterback, and I didn't go with Oregon players. That would be Reggie Bush, played at USC for the Trojans for three seasons, won the Heisman. His junior year was a two-time Pac-10 Offensive Player of the Year, was a two-time Consensus All-American, uh, and then found himself to be drafted by the New Orleans Saints in the first round, second pick overall, went to the Dolphins, played with the Lions for a little bit, played one year with, with the 49ers, and then his final year was with the Bills when he retired. He's an inductee into the Saints Hall of Fame. He's a Super Bowl champion. He's a first-team All-Pro player. Uh, he's a two-time AP national champion from a college football perspective. Uh, guy was electrifying and I think kind of really changed college football as a whole and, and was one of those guys where like, cause he was, he was one of the original, um, utility guys. Like he was an elite running back, but he was also an elite receiver too. And I really wonder what would his life or his college, you know, career been like? at USC or just in general, if you plug them into an offense today, like he was really good in a traditional offense, plug him into like a spread offense and see what he would have done. Like that would have been just bonkers to watch. Um, the second player that I listed off is Adrian Peterson. 
played at Oklahoma, came to Oregon, play, uh, I think in 2005. Six. To play the Ducks. What was it, six? 2006, yeah. Yeah, 2006. Um, seven-time Pro Bowler, four-time first-team All-Pro player in the NFL, uh, won the MVP award in the NFL, Offensive Player of the Year in the NFL, was a Heisman Trophy winner, um, a guy that uh, – he didn't win the Heisman Trophy, excuse me. Uh, he was the Big 12 Offensive Freshman of the Year, a three-time All-Big 12 player, um, just one of the best running backs in college football history, one of the best running backs in NFL history. So when I got this prompt, three names came to my head, and you said two of them. My first name was Adrian Peterson, because I remember that game with Oklahoma. My second name was Deshaun Jackson, and my third name was Reggie Bush. And it's crazy, because those three players all played together. or Not all together, but they played at Autzen over a three-year period. Um, and I think those are probably the players that stand out to most people. And it would be interesting to hear from listeners, um, either on social media or on the website, kind of which players stood out when you saw that question for the first time. But I went through and tried to go and pull up the best individual sort of performance for a visiting player since 2000. Um, and so I've run, here are the 10 I've got, and I included the three I just mentioned as well. But in 2002, and this is in order of when they took place, in 2002, Mike Williams, wide receiver from USC, came to Odson. Yeah. He, he was a top five NFL draft choice that year. He had 13 catches for 226 yards and two touchdowns. Um, that's actually not the best individual receiving game on this list. There's another one later that's better, but he's one of those players who I know he didn't have the NFL career, but collegiately he was basically unstoppable for a couple of years at USC. Um, Reggie Bush, Adrian Peterson, Deshaun Jackson are the next three in terms of timeline. Reggie Bush in 2005 ran for 122 yards and a touchdown, also had 43 yards receiving and a touchdown. Adrian Peterson in 2006 had 211 yards rushing and a touchdown. Deshaun Jackson, and I really remember this game because it was a really brutal game to watch. I think this was the Cam Colvin fumble at the one-yard line game through the end zone. But uh, Deshaun Jackson in 2007, 11 catches, 161 yards, two touchdowns. And here's the one I was telling Matt Offair he would never get. And in fact, I would never have gotten. And, of course, we're talking about combining college and pro careers. He does not qualify because I'd never heard of him. But from Houston. In 2007, running back Anthony Aldridge ran for 224 yards, had 88 yards receiving, and two touchdowns. Oregon won the game, but that's the most yardage I could find, at least, from scrimmage for a visiting player at Otson. It was over, wow. 300, over 315 yards of total offense. He's a player, again, I couldn't have – if I if you pointed to him out of the lineup, I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't. tell you who he was. I didn't know who he was, but he had a huge game at Otson back in 07 – or, yeah, 2007. Um, Matt, you would never have got that one, right? No, there's no way. And I don't, I'm guessing most people listening, maybe someone vaguely remembers this, but I did, honestly, I didn't even remember this game, um, myself, and that was right when I would have been, uh, finishing up high school. So those years were, should have been somewhat formative. Um, 2008, Rob Gronkowski, tight end from Arizona. That's one sort of self-explanatory. That's who I thought you were gonna, you were gonna say. Well, that was a good one that you mentioned there. He had 12 catches, 143 yards, and a touchdown. Um, another one of those that players. It was a rainy game. I remember that. Oh, yeah, it was. And uh, he was just someone that Oregon couldn't guard, and nobody really could um, over his couple years at Arizona. Next couple here are receivers. Marquise Lee from USC 2011 as a freshman came to Austin, had eight catches for 187 yards and two touchdowns. USC won that game. Um, 2015 is one that... 
I hadn't thought of, but I looked at the research and I, when I saw this game was scheduled, I immediately went, oh, there's the Cooper Cup game from Eastern Washington in 2015. This is the best receiving game I could find from a visiting player. 15 catches, 246 yards, three touchdowns. Oregon won that game. That was, of course, the game where Vernon Adams uh, was knocked out. Uh, it was hurt, at least, by a opposing Eastern Washington former teammate. Um, but Cup was great in that game. He's ended up being, I think at the time people were like, wow, we let some, Oregon let some sort of Eastern Washington FCS receiver carve us up. What's wrong with this Oregon defense? Oh, he was pretty good. But he ends up being pretty good. He, you know, plays in the NFL, one of the top, um, one of the top receiving offenses, at least with the Rams. He's a, a big part of that. Christian McCaffrey from Stanford in 2016 had 135 yards, 52 yards receiving and three total touchdowns. And then this one's probably not going to be popular choice here, but Miles Gaskin from Washington in 2016. I'm not even going to say what game that was, but we all know because I'm, it was a pretty significant game. Uh, 197 yards and one rushing touchdown. So uh, those are the 10 best individual performances I could find from visiting non-quarterbacks at Watson from an offensive perspective. I did not run through the defensive guys. I'm sure there are some really good choices there as well, but um, those are 10 I have. I'm sure those listening are probably going, man, you did a lot of research and you missed X, Y, or Z. If I did, let me know. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting to, to run down memory lane, but you look at the, the players that I brought up here, almost all of them, aside from Anthony Aldridge, and I guess you could say Miles Gaskin, are pretty damn good or have become pretty darn good NFL players. Um, and a lot of them are for the Pac-12, so that speaks to what the conference has been able to develop as well. One that I lo- was looking up while I was going through this that really surprised me it didn't play really well. Aaron Rodgers, when he played against Oregon up as a sophomore with Cal, he didn't really have that particularly of a, of a good football game. Um, another one that stood out of like, wow, that there really wasn't like a dominant player. Like I remember in 2003 when Oregon just got destroyed by Washington State. Um, yeah. Like I went and looked at that box score. I was like, okay, there's probably going to be some receiver for the Cougars that that had like 200 yards receiving and, and two touchdowns or three touchdowns or something like that, or their quarterback's going to throw for 500 yards. Like it was just like very average numbers. Um, I, I, I was kind of surprised at some of these games. I would think like, okay, there's going to be someone that's just going to destroy Oregon at Austin Stadium, and because this game just was not good, and it didn't happen. It was kind of weird. Yeah, and then another one that, like, somebody that should have had a big game, I would have thought was, like, a Toby Gerhardt. Remember all those yes. crazy rushing stats? He had, like, a 225-yard game against Oregon at Palo Alto the year before, and then I think his final game at Otson, or maybe it was, I can't remember if it was his, well, I guess it was his final game at Otson. He had, like, 65 yards rushing, so I couldn't really include him on the list, but he's somebody over the last 20 years that I think it's lost because he didn't have a pro career really at all, but in terms of a dominant college running back, boy, was he tough to stop for those Stanford teams. And did you? How much did you look at defensively? Because I, I, I didn't I really go could, very much into it. Yeah, I didn't go too yeah. far into it. And maybe there's, maybe there, defensively, there's a guy out there that that we need to know better about. But I, I just look at that thinking like I, no one really stood out defensively to me. Well, I know like Terrell Suggs at Arizona State had some big games. I even remember Vontae's Burrfect being somebody that was memorable when Oregon played, or a Scooby Wright at Arizona. And I'm sure there are defensive players in the back, defensive backfield in particular I'm missing. But, yeah, there wasn't players that jumped out off the top of my head like a Adrian Peterson, Reggie Bush, Deshaun Jackson kind of name. 
All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. If you made it this far, thank you for listening to the entire show. We really appreciate you for doing that. For Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Prame, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount+. Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. 